It's a distinct honor and privilege that we've each been given again to assemble and to gather as we are this first day of the week. This is the fourth Sunday, of course, in the month of May, and we're delighted that God has blessed us to this point in this calendar year and allowed us to assemble and gather today as we have. As was mentioned earlier by Brother Ted, we're blessed with a good number of our members here today, certainly, and we're thankful for that. But in addition, several visitors, as usual, have come our way, and for you, we're especially delighted you're with us. And we hope that the time of our service together will be encouraging, uplifting, and truly inspirational for each of us as we look forward to this week in service to God. I would like to take a moment of personal privilege and extend a word of thanks to those men who so capably and ably filled the pulpit last Sunday while my family and I enjoyed a time of vacation. We certainly enjoyed that very, very much, but we're also happy to be back home. There is no place quite like home, as we often say, and we're delighted to be back with our family here at Pippin. The golden text of the Bible is the lesson title I've chosen this morning. It is true that as you and I think about the various chapters, and yeah, even the verses of the Bible, the Holy Word of God has some 31,102 verses. And of them, so many are cherished. So many of them rest often memorably in our heart and mind. Maybe Psalm 23 is a favorite of, of some in this audience. We often think about the solace and comfort it provides. For others, maybe it's other chapters such as the 8th chapter of Romans or the first chapter of Romans, or yea, that powerful prayer Jesus uttered the night prior to His crucifixion in John 17. Three chapters earlier in John 14, 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Five verses earlier in that same chapter, He had said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Those verses have meant so much to so many, but I would submit to you that there is any number of others that maybe are your personal favorites and that have meant so much to you throughout the years. One text that so often is a memorable one for many is the so-called golden text of the Bible. I would like for us to study that in some detail this morning. As we do so, that is John chapter 3, verse 16. And as we do so, reminding ourselves again of why maybe it's called that, I would submit to you, though, that the Holy Word of God never calls it the golden text. That's a name given to it by men. But it does have a golden sweetness to it, doesn't it? You may have noticed as Cale read it in our hearing a moment ago. It does go like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we reflect on that for the next few moments, why don't we begin by giving some thought to the setting in which that text is found. It is true that quite often a tremendous benefit can be ours as we give thought to the setting both before and after of the occurrence of that passage. In John chapter 3, verse number 1, we find that an interesting individual came and visited our master at night. His name was Nicodemus. As Nicodemus came and visited him, he in fact made a powerful observation. He said, Master, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. As Nicodemus made the observation, the miracles alone which the Lord had done 
testified of the fact that he was from God, that he was from heaven, and as such, he was one to which the attention of men should turn. You'll notice in the very next verse, though, the Lord said, Verily I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Immediately in response to those complimentary words of Nicodemus, Jesus ushered forth to him the fact that it's necessary that a man be born again. It's necessary for rebirth in order to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused, perplexed. And in the next verse he said, in verse number 4, How is it that a man that is old can be born again? Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus in verse 5 said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And immediately in a triumphant observation, the Lord had said that it is absolutely essential in order for a person to enter the marvelous and powerful kingdom of God, it's necessary that he be born of water and the Spirit. At this point, we notice that conversation did not end. In verses 6 and following, Jesus and Nicodemus discussed further matters, and the Lord, in fact, reprimanded him for not appreciating a deeper spiritual insight. As all of that reaches a crescendo in many ways, I would invite you to notice particularly verses 14, 15, and 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As this description pushed forward, the Lord made observation, and the inspired writer made reference to the fact of a scene that had occurred millennia earlier. It's found in Numbers chapter 21. You remember the scene well. The children of Israel, as they had journeyed, leaving Mount Hor, the text says they had become discouraged in the way discouraged in the way, and as a result of that discouragement, they spoke against Moses, they spoke against God. Their displeasure and the hotness thereof brought forth the following. Remember, in speaking against both Moses and God, the next verse informs us that God sent fiery serpents among them, and it bit the people, and many of them, the text says, died. Sometimes notice what complaining will get us. Here in their complaining and in their grumbling, God, in fact, miraculously apparently, but in any way directed fiery serpents among them such that many people upon being bitten died. We notice that the people recognized the following. They began to pray unto Moses and they urged that something be done because they were dying from these snakes, these serpents. Moses prayed unto God and isn't it interesting that God gave these instructions. God did not miraculously kill the snakes. God did not instantaneously remove them. But this is what He did. He told Moses, Make thee a brazen serpent, and put it on a pole, and erect it in the camp. And anyone upon being bitten, if he or she will look upon that serpent, they will live. Moses did exactly as God commanded, erecting that brazen serpent, a serpent of brass, if you please, on that pole, and sure enough, when anyone that was bitten looked upon it, they were able to leave. You'll notice in this text in John 3, 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Here a comparison is made. That word as reminds us that in the same way that something was lifted up then, 
so too someone is lifted up now. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Those fiery serpents that plagued the children of Israel were such that it brought much anguish, much death, much difficulty, much trial, affliction, and hardship. And yet, when anyone upon being bitten would turn his gaze toward the brazen serpent on the pole, he was able to leave. At this point, in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the inspired writer says, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. These words, of course, were spoken before Jesus went to the cross. That's why it's not past tense. But the time would come not many years hence from the time this was descriptive of, such that indeed the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, would be lifted up. And as such, all of those who correctly and rightly and appropriately look upon Him, they too can be freed from the disease known as sin. In the case of the fiery serpents, it was poison racing apparently through the bodies of those Israelites. Poison wreaked upon them as a result of those fiery serpents. You and I know that we face an even more deadly enemy, sin. We do read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There isn't a one of us who've reached an age of accountability who can say that I'm free from sin and my perfect life ought to be testimony to that fact. All of us say things we ought not. We leave unsaid things we should say. We leave undone things we should do. We do things we ought not. We think things we shouldn't. All of those constitute sin. Sometimes we violate our conscience on matters of indifference. Romans 14, 23. All of those things then do for you and for me the essence of the sinisterness of this passage. We too need freed from it. If we will turn our gaze to the Son of Man appropriately imbibing within ourselves the thought of His life and body and obey Him with fullness and completeness, we too can be freed from the terrible poison of sin. Maybe as you look at verse number 15, we have an explanatory force that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. Remember, many in the children of Israel died because of the snakes. And untold numbers are meeting their Maker today as they pass from this life not ready to meet Him. And they're going to be eternally dead. In the sense, separated from Him. No hope of life within them. you notice this text in verse 15 said, "...that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish." It's not necessary to die unready to meet the Lord. It's not necessary to die and go to hell. You and I can make that terrible choice if we wish. But the Lord Jesus Christ came. And if we will turn and look to Him, following Him appropriately, we need not die that way. Finally, in verse 15, but have eternal life. We so often reflect and think about life in this flesh. It exists for a while. As a babe is born from the womb of its mother, the time will come that unless the Lord comes soon, that it will, of course, die and that period of some few years, maybe 70, maybe 80, maybe 100. But you'll notice Jesus didn't refer to that kind of life. He preceded the word life with the adjective eternal. Some translations read it everlasting. Life that has no end. Life that never ceases to be. Life that is ongoing perpetually. Don't you want to be one to enjoy that kind of life? 
We live in a world that places so much emphasis upon this which we can see. We have our trinkets, possessions, and toys, and we enjoy it while we're here. That's one of the greatest attributes that the devil uses to keep our attention riveted on what's in the here and now so that we never think about what's beyond. But if we will realize the Lord came, not that we might have the trinkets and toys of this life, but that we might in fact gaze our thoughts on eternity and understand that only those who die in the Lord will be ready, Revelation 14, 13, to inhabit that place beyond. As we've looked at verses 1 to 15, then in brevity so far this morning, it brings us to that text that follows verse number 16. You can see then that a number of powerful truths have been used to precede it. Now let's look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I would invite you then to journey with me basically word by word, sometimes phrase by phrase as we move our way through that verse, and cast anew our thought to what it says, revisiting its power, appreciating its truth, and resting always on the lovely premise that it presents. The first word is the word for. It's a conjunction that ties this to what has just been said. Those two verses we just read, verses 14 and 15, that spoke about lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, and those that would look upon it could thus be spared and saved. So too must the Son of Man be lifted up. How will that happen? Verse 16, for this that explains how that's going to occur. You'll notice the next word is the word God, the subject of the sentence. Our youngsters learn in school that the subject of the sentence is the one that does the action, the one that is the principal thrust and force of the sentence as it appears, the one that is involved here with such prestige as God. For God, the text says, that God that you and I encounter so often in the sacred text, a God of marvelous graciousness, as you can see in Psalm 145 verse 8, a God of overwhelming love, 1 John 4 8, the God also who is a God of wrath, Colossians 3, 6. A God who is known carefully and powerfully by His own people, Isaiah 45, 21. God is infinite. He is great in understanding, Psalm 147, verse 5. This God is one who is good, as stated by Jesus. There is none good but one, and that's God. This God who is the subject of the sentence brings us immediately to note this. That mention alone does away with any thought of atheism, doesn't it? This inspired writer made note of here is the existence of one known as God, Yahweh, Jehovah. He does exist. And though there may be those who choose to deny it, and though there may be those who wish that it were not so, He does exist, and there is coming a day of reckoning in which one and all will stand before His presence. Romans 14, verse number 12. This God, you'll notice, leads us to what's next. For God so. Oh, what a two-letter word that is. In the Greek text, it's an adverb. It could easily have been translated by the word thus. God thus loved the world. It is an adverb of intensity. It is an adverb of magnitude. It explains the degree to which God loved. God so loved the world. You and I can gaze about us. 
and see the powerful goodness of God in the physical creation He's made. And we can even look in a mirror as we do perhaps each morning and appreciate how special you and I are being made in His image and likeness. Genesis 1, 26 and 7. But by the same token, here is a special, extraordinarily special reference to His love. God so loved. That adverb so points us then to the verb. What is it that God did? For God so loved. What a beautiful word. That word love is from the Greek word agape, which occurs in excess of 350 times in the New Testament. It is a central word descriptive of a life in Christ. It is the kind of love that God had for you and me. It's the kind of love we're to have to one another and toward God. As you'll notice this matter of love, we now learn what God did. God loved. We might ask, who did He love? And in what way did He love them? The verse, however, will explain all of that in due course. As you can give thought to the nature of this love, that word agape has reference to a selfless kind of love. A love that is by choice. It's not a love that has to be, but it's one that the person chooses to extend. And didn't God do that for you and me? And aren't you and I supposed to do that to others? God doesn't want us to love others just because we think we have to, but because like Him we should want to. For isn't it still true that God, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins? The nature of that love brings us to this. Who or what did God love? For God so loved the world. There's the direct object of the verb. God loved the world. Now notice, he isn't talking here about trees and plants and dogs and cats and bears. That Greek word is the word cosmos. It looks like cosmos to you and me, K-O-S-M-O-S. The cosmos. God loved it. That has reference to those animate beings, you and me, human beings. He loved you and I. He loved the human family, be it in this generation or previous ones. He loved us. As you'll notice, those human inhabitants bring us to the final observation on that slide. We noted earlier by that adverb, so, there's a greatness to that love of God. God so loved the world. You'll notice again, remember the context put a serpent on a pole and the people of Israel could look upon it when bitten and thus live. You and I too have a son of man who has been suspended. On a cross he was placed, and if you and I will look toward him, he too can offer to us the matter of salvation. Look at these verses if you would. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel had put it like this in Ezekiel 18.20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. The right and due penalty for sin is death. Period. Plain and simple. Not just a temporary death, but a continual dissolution and separation from God. You'll notice that's what you and I rightfully deserve because we're sinners. But you'll notice Romans 6.23 says, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It may well be the wages of sin is death, but isn't it a fantastic and beautiful stroke of genius in the divine realm 
that God has allowed you and me to appreciate the grandeur and glory of Jesus Christ our Lord and life through His name. It is for those things our discussion continues. We've already highlighted the first part of the verse. Let's march a little bit more forward. The next part of the verse reads, "...that He gave His only begotten Son." The word that is a conjunction that again continues in force as it links this next statement to what has just been said. God so loved the world, to what end? To what effect? That He gave His only begotten Son. That's the extent to which God loved. That is the degree to which He loved you and me. That. Next, we encounter the subject of this subordinate clause. The word is He. John 3.16, that He gave His only begotten Son. That word He refers to God. It refers to the Father in heaven. Thus, as we give thought to that He, you'll notice the verb is then He gave. The literal word in the original language means to give. It's not that He was forced to do it. It's not that by some other means of other power, He rather chose by voluntary character to give His Son. And as He did so, you'll notice this powerful observation brings us to the degree of God's love. Think of it this way with me if you would. He gave His only begotten Son. We learned throughout our study of the Holy Text that the Godhead consists of three. Perfectly harmonious, perfectly united, perfectly together. There is but one God, but there is but one Spirit. There is but one Son or Lord, Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. We do learn in this passage that God made the choice of giving a part of Himself, the second member of that Godhead. Think about the degree of that kind of love. Every now and then, you and I come face to face with those in life who have made a similar choice. You may remember a few years back that there was a couple walking along some train tracks. They were, I'm sure, having a very peaceful and lovely, tranquil walk, but in the distance, they began to hear a train coming. The lady got her foot stuck in the, in the trestle in the tracks. The train was getting closer and closer. They were unable to wedge her foot clear. They were unable to free her from the tracks. I'm sure their hearts began to pound noticeably as they could hear the train coming closer and closer. Though they tried with feverishness, though they tried with earnestness, they were unable to free her. Finally, the train was now actually visible. Now, it was not just a far distance away. There it was. She still was trapped. He tried, she tried, nothing could be done. Finally, they realized the inevitable was about to happen. They were unable to free her. The train couldn't stop in time. The man made this choice. Rather than go on living without her, he held her hand and died with her. He gave his life right along with her as the train crushed both of them to death. He gave himself for her. That's a powerful stroke of love on his part toward her and a powerful reminder of the union that they had enjoyed. Notice again, the Father gave Himself for us. The Father gave His Son a part of Himself, His only begotten Son. That word only begotten is monogenes in the original language and what a special usage that word has. You'll notice one more thing might be said. 
as you and I reflect, again, God gave this. Not that man could claim to have deserved it. Not that man could claim to have been worthy of it. Perhaps Paul had that very thought in mind when in Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, he said, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's rehearse that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here was Randy Bybee, a lowly, unworthy sinner. One unworthy of the blood of Christ. One unworthy of the home in heaven because I had sinned. And yet Christ, with a viewpoint toward saving me, voluntarily gave Himself. In John chapter 10, didn't Jesus say, The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Those words in the original text mean with voluntary force He laid it down. Nobody made Christ do this. He subjugated Himself to the will of the Father and voluntarily gave His life for you and me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. As you come near the bottom of that slide, you and I now notice what a tremendous gift it was. Now we have already learned earlier that in the case of the children of Israel, if they looked upon the brazen serpent, upon being bitten, they could continue then to live. You'll notice we now have reached that same point in our study. What if you and I avail ourselves of that precious gift of Christ? Let's look at the next part of the verse. Verse 16, "...that whosoever believeth in Him..." You'll notice again the usage of the word that... Proceeding, again, a clause descriptive of a set of circumstances relative to receiving the benefit or gift of this matter of God. God sent His Son, gave His Son to die for the human family, but sadly not all will benefit from it because they choose in rebellion to ignorantly reject it. They turn their back upon the God of heaven. They make the choice, I'll not live as a Christian, I will not submit to baptism, I will not do the things God has commanded, and in so doing, they reject, they refuse to look upon the pole. I would like to ask, put yourself in the place of one of those Israelites. Suppose you'd been bitten by one of those snakes. Would you consider it foolish for maybe your husband or wife to say, Dear, look upon the pole and live, and you say, I don't want to. I think I'll try to find the remedy myself. I think I have a better way. Wouldn't that be the height of folly? The absolute height of foolishness? The remedy is available. Why not look upon the pole? The Son of Man has come. God has given His Son. The human family has access to the blood of Christ. Why would anyone refuse to look upon Him, to render obedience to Him? And yet multitudes do that very thing. They think that they're happy in another way. They're happily choosing or pursuing a different course. Let's revisit this statement. That whosoever believeth in Him. That word whosoever is an amazing word, isn't it? You'll notice that word identifies who may benefit from God's gift. And whosoever means whosoever. It means you. It means me be man or woman, be it young or old, educated or not, it doesn't matter. Everybody can have access to the loveliness and power of this gift. Whosoever believeth in Him. 
whosoever serves as the subject of that subordinate clause. And then you'll notice the next word is believeth. That's the verb. That's the action attending this whosoever. This whosoever, if he or she is to be the recipient of the marvelous wonder of this blessing, must believe. That word believes, you can see, it means to have faith in. And I would submit to you to note the power of the way in which that word appears. The Greek text has a number of specifics detailing the way in which words appear. In the same way we do in English. There's present tense, past tense, future tense. There are verbs of action and there are verbs that have other kinds of states of being. This verb in Greek is active in its tense and that means it's continuous in its action. It's not possible to believe just one time at the moment of baptism. One must go on believing. Continuous action until the time, of course, of death. Our belief must be an active and faithful one throughout life. Isn't that the way in which the New Testament presents that thought? For without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Note the adverb, diligently. We must with earnestness and eagerness desire and seek Him always. Hebrews eleven six. As we then appreciate what that belief does, it shows itself, of course, in the actions of our life, the way in which we live, those things that we do. To say that differently, it manifests itself in our works, in our obedience. Those statements bring us to the last part of that slide. You'll notice that among the passages I would ask you to consider is that James 1 verse 22. There, as James penned that powerful letter to those of his day, he said, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. The people were admonished not just to hear it, not just to have some thought in mind, but to put into action that which has been learned. May you and I as Christians always do the same. May we obey fully, beginning with that gospel plan of salvation. Friend, have you attended to that need? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, if you have a degree of knowledge in your heart, why not attend to the matter of obedience? We're going to sing a song of encouragement shortly. And as we do that, there may be one or more in this audience who has never yet rendered initial obedience to the cause of the Master. And at this point, you are thus languishing in a world of sin. Christ's blood has never yet cleansed you. Why do you wait? Why not look upon the pole? The Son of God was suspended between heaven and earth on a cruel cross by wicked men. He hung there shedding His blood for each and every one of us. Won't you look upon it? Won't you use that blood to cleanse you from sin? You'll notice furthermore, not only in James 1, but in that text in Acts 8. Might I ask, what did belief mean to those of that day? When Philip preached with such clearness, it says, When they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Belief and baptism go together. You can't believe and then refuse to be baptized. Today, my friend, if you've believed, why not show that manifesting it in the way that the New Testament demands? And that is to say, by completing your obedience. That means repenting of sins, confessing His sweet name, and then being baptized. As you come to the bottom of that slide, the thought then appears before us like this. 
that whosoever believeth in Him. That phrase in Him, remember, refers to the Son of Man, which we mentioned earlier, and that's Christ. God gave the Christ. Do you believe in Him? You'll notice that thought of believing in Him brings us to the closing thought of our slide this morning. The way in which we'll conclude that verse. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Any person who thus does not look upon the Christ, as identified here, is subject to perish. That's the only way to read the inspired text. Do you want to perish? Do I want to perish? If not, there's only one way then to remove ourselves from that, and that is to look upon the Son, to believe in Him, to obey Him with fullness and majesty and power. This very day, these concluding thoughts then are yours as we draw this lesson to its conclusion. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In that verse we have the great love of God manifested in the gift of His Son. We furthermore have the need for human individual response. We must believe in His Son. And in so doing, only in that way by obedience can we enjoy that eternal life of which the Lord spoke. This very day, it may be that you have become a member of the body of Christ. But as the days, the months, the years have passed onward, you no longer are faithful. You have said things, you've done things, you've been places that has brought shame and reproach upon the life of Christ. Others, upon seeing your life, have had disdain for the cause of the gospel. Why not today ask the prayers of brethren? Come before us, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. That statement, desiring those prayers, takes us to James 5.16, the closing thought of the lesson. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Today, if you perhaps have been reminded anew of this text of John 3.16, and your life isn't right with God, why not make it so today? Allow Christ to make it so as you come forward, even as we stand in just a moment and sing. Right now, that invitation is offered, and if we could be of help to one or more, won't you come while together we stand and as we sing.